Good afternoon and welcome to HIT Policy Update, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Lexus Nexus Risk Solutions. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the editor-in-chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. Send in your questions or comments as they occur to you in the Q&A box, and we'll take them later in the program. Nice way to view the screen. Click on the top center, get it in side-by-side -side mode. Then you can adjust the divider to get the slides in the video boxes the size you want. And it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going to go about 30 minutes, our main presentation from Dr. John Halamka, president of the Mayo Clinic platform. Then we're going to have a word with our sponsor, and that will be with Jay Sultan, VP of Healthcare Strategy with LexisNexis Risk Solutions, and then we will have our audience Q&A. So without any further delay, I'm going to turn it, turn it over to our good friend and regular guest, Dr. John Halamka. Hey, well, Anthony, thanks so much. And great to be with you all today because this is a very active time in HIT policy. And it's active for so many reasons. We have a new administration, a new national coordinator, our colleague, Mickey Tripathi. We have new energy at CMS and HHS, CDC and FDA. But we also have a pandemic and pandemic response. And today we'll be talking a bit about societal resilience and some of those technologies that are HIT specific that'll help us get not through only this pandemic, but the pandemics and events to follow. And it doesn't necessarily need to be infectious disease, right? Anthony, it could be a freeze in Texas, right? You need to start thinking about how as a society we can respond to such events better. So why don't we start with some of the quarterly themes as I look on the horizon for the next three months. So. Uh, what we're starting to see is a lot of discussion about the interoperability rule and information blocking rule and effective dates. We'll talk through those. Uh, of course, there's lots of talk about vaccine credentialing and return to life, return to work. What does all that mean? We're certainly seeing a fair amount in the South Africa, UK and Brazil COVID variants and asks, asking the question, well, what do these variants imply for societal response and IT? We're seeing introduction of new therapies. We're also seeing a really interesting focus on equity and disparities of care. And we'll go through some of that. So let us start with the information blocking rule and interoperability. And we'll just leave it on this slide, uh, Anthony, for, for a moment. So remember that the Cures Act proposed these two constructs. The, the notion of information blocking is, is that Maybe we have the technology, maybe we have a policy, but Anthony, I don't like your organization, so I am not going to send you data. Well, this is what I call psychiatry. It's not technology or policy. And information blocking is about resolving the psychiatry problem. And so, in effect, remember what it says is that there is not going to be an attempt to create a, a unreasonable technical or policy barrier to getting at information exchange that is required for care coordination, treatment, payment, and operations. And especially, of course, if this would lead to fraud and waste and abuse, 
uh, because there would be lack of coordination, therefore resulting in error or redundancy. And remember that this has been delayed twice. And so now the question you'd ask, if you remember the last delay, it said April 2021 would be the effective date for the information blocking rule. And people are saying, well, it's a pandemic. Should we see a further delay? Now, I do not represent any government entity. I have no insider information here, but uh, a number of us on this call have been speaking with government, academia, and industry about readiness and willingness to move forward in April 2021. And I'll tell you, the overwhelming sentiment is yes. Let us not defer the information blocking rule any further. It would send a very bad sign. And especially in a time of pandemic, when we need more information for more purposes, going to more actors, to say, oh, well, we're going to defer it yet again. Now, if you're worried, remember the wonderful thing about the information blocking rule is that there are eight exceptions to the rule that are all quite reasonable and valid. So imagine, Anthony, that you've been diagnosed with a very significant disease. And I haven't had a chance to tell you about that very significant disease, but I'm going to send that information to another actor in such a way that it could cause you harm. Okay, well, it is not information blocking to say, Anthony and I have a call next week and I'll send it as soon as we have that call, right? You're preventing harm. Or imagine that there's a privacy issue. Again, making this up, but there is maybe an entity that Anthony doesn't want his information sent to. It's not information blocking for me to adhere to the patient's wishes and respect those wishes and not forward the data. Or what if, Again, totally making this up. There is an app uh, made by TikTok and it wants your data. <laughs> and I say, oh, TikTok doesn't sound like a very secure platform. And if we really are concerned about the end-to-end -end security of that data to ensure it's non-disclosing, then that is a re reasonable exception. Or it's, in, it's just not feasible. Um, you know, Anthony has just asked for five petabytes of information to be sent from place to place and you know there's just not the bandwidth or there is a, a sort of a notion that certain kinds of content uh, might be accepted because you know of issues of the the standards aren't ready yet or it's just infeasible to represent that information or it's extraordinarily expensive and burdensome each of these is is very tightly worded so that there isn't something that allows you to just make up an excuse and then claim that it's one of these exceptions. I mean, they're very sort of reasonable as we roll out information blocking to say, we're going to do it. It's going to be done in a timely manner, probably starting in April, but we will have an out as we begin the transition from where we are today to where we need to be. And also remember that the interoperability rule from CMS has a whole series of provisions. And this is just not quite so easy to say April 2021 because there is the patient access API giving every patient access to their common data set, the provider directory API so that you can understand who are the information providers and how to reach them, payer to payer data exchange. There's the notion of 
ADT transactions, each time a patient is admitted, discharged, or transferred, that there is the communication with an ACO or other provider organizations about that patient movement. Each of these will have a set of effective dates associated with it. But again, I do not see any of those effective dates being further deferred to what they already are in the last deferral. And even just at Mayo Clinic, I asked the question, are we ready for the patient-facing API requirement? The answer is yes. You know, are we ready for ADT? Yes. And, and it's not just large organizations. I've talked to a number of small organizations, and this is because all this technology has been in the EHR already for years. It's just a question of some of the, the workflow process around implementing some of these data flows like the patient-facing API that required some additional institutional work. And the general consensus is sure, there are gonna be some who are not quite ready, but by and large, the industry is ready for this. And again, unless you know, if you're a payer and you're concerned, remember that the payer-to-payer -payer data exchange was always a little later, and it will continue to be a little later, just not deferred any further, because many payer systems were just never designed to have that kind of API-driven, internet-focused exchange. So there you go. I think what we're going to see coming out of ONC, out of HHS and CMS, is that these rules will begin to roll out on schedule in April and that they're going to create new opportunities, new opportunities for new apps, new opportunities for new companies and new functions as data liquidity with privacy protection and patient engagement is enhanced. Now let's talk about vaccines. You've probably, Anthony, remember from our previous uh, get together that I described COVID as five stages of COVID. We had initial isolation, followed by, we then went out a bit, we needed testing, maybe contact tracing. Oh, then started, we see cures uh, like convalescent plasma, then vaccines, and we're in the vaccine era. And then we get to what I'll call the new normal as we see a lot of vaccination and cures being rolled out. Each of these requires an IT component, right? If we reflect back on isolation, PPE was the big issue and figuring out where were the masks needed and where the mask supplies and were the masks good enough or were they fraudulent? And so we worked through a variety of IT solutions back in March, April timeframe. What I would assert is I'm hoping that we're going to see more and more APIs get built into our supply chain systems so that we don't have to FTP spreadsheets around for that PPE coordination to occur for the next kind of event. And of course, you've seen that there's been contact tracing, the Google Apple exposure notification protocol that is built on Android and iOS that enables patient-controlled opt-in participation in exposure notification it's not that I know it's Anthony, but Anthony has a phone and I was within six feet of Anthony's phone for greater than 15 minutes. And if Anthony declares he tests positive, it's just I'm told there was a phone near me without understanding whose phone it was. Right. So that's rolled out to a lot of states and some states actually have pretty good adoption. And then, as I say, 
cures. We'll talk about therapies in a moment and clinical trials. But what about vaccines? I mean, as you've read in the news, the vaccine challenge is multifactorial. First, there is this notion of, let's think of the workflow. Anthony being a young, healthy guy with no comorbidities, he should register on a some kind of vaccine eligibility site. Says, you know, I'm 40, I have no comorbidities, I'm not a fire person, you know, I, there's all kinds of characteristics of Anthony. And then once Anthony is registered, it says, oh, well, based on his total general health, you know, he's not in the front lines of phase one, maybe he's phase three. It schedules him based on some rules. Well, then there'll be a point at which he is qualified to make an appointment and has to then schedule when is he going to get his first vaccination. And then, of course, following that, 28 days later, 21 days later, he'll get a second vaccination if need be. So fine, that's a whole stack of information components. But now Anthony has his vaccines. He wants to go to a concert. I hear there's this Springsteen event. And to do that, Live Nation, I'm making this up, Anthony. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> says <laughs> you can come to the Springsteen event if you bring a credential that says that you've got two Pfizer's or 72 hours ago, you had a PCR test, right? Something that is indicative that you are you know, appropriately COVID-free or COVID-protected. Well, lots of issues about that. So, so one issue would be, how do I provide a proof of clinical data that is signed with a digital certificate and therefore not likely to be fraudulent. So uh, Anthony, it was interesting. Last evening I was on a, a call with a leading tech company executive who said, hey, I just wanna proudly show you my vaccination record. And he pulled out his vaccine card that showed he had two Pfizer's, the, the time and all the rest. He said, yeah, you know, take a look at it, it's proof. Only problem is I was never vaccinated. He simply went to the website, got a PDF of a vaccination form, hand filled it out, signed it, and put it on a three by five index card, mm -hmm. right? Or what if, again, we're talking not only vaccine data, but it could be just about any signed clinical data. I say, hey, Anthony, look, you know, here's my Oxycontin proof, uh, 30 a day. Yeah, right. you can believe it, it's on my phone. Right. So this is the key. Signed clinical data that you can then trace back to a provider organization, a pharmacy organization, a payer organization, a lab organization, because it has been signed with the digital certificate of that organization. And therefore, you, you can say, ah, it actually in a signed certificate on Anthony's phone says Pfizer one, Pfizer two, this date, this time, Anthony Guerra, and oh, the uh, provider of the certificate was, you know, Hoboken Hospital. And you could, um, again, making that up. And then you can go back to the certificate store and get the public key for Hoboken Hospital and say, ah, yes, this was legitimately signed by that entity and Hoboken Hospital 
is trusted as a provider of vaccines. So I tell you that, now vaccine credentialing, it's not required, right? It's not a government program that says you must have one of these. It, what it is, it's a set of data standards based on fire that says, should you wish to use this as part of going to a event, back to work, travel, and it's gonna somehow facilitate what you wanna do, having signed clinical data that's verifiable is key. Now, if we go to the next slide, I'm not sure this is exactly the final slide stack, but that's okay. And then I just wanna see if, if you have, yes, you're good, you, you, you got this one. Maybe it's just on my screen, just a little cut off. So I wanna just sort of describe the scope of the Vaccine Credential Initiative or VCI. The idea of this, and this is major companies in the US, hundreds of them, it's government, it's, in, it's academia all working together. We've all decided that using this fire-based standard called the Smart Health Card, which enables us to instantiate any clinical data, not just vaccine records, but it could be a COVID PCR test, could be anything, into a signed phone-based QR code and certificate or file for exchange. That's the initiative. But let me sort of just talk through a use case. Again, making this up, not endorsing any company or service, Anthony, but let's say Delta Airlines says, oh, you want to fly to a foreign land. And that foreign land has certain criteria about what passengers are allowed to land in that country and then be able to travel without quarantine. So what Delta says is bring us a signed piece of clinical data, lab test, vaccine, whatever. Oh, we're also going to administer a user survey. Do you have a fever? Do you, have you lost your sense of taste or smell, right? Some questions. And then presumably Delta in its app will have some what I'll call identity validation function because Anthony has a driver's license, a passport, a TSA pre-check card. So we actually know it's Anthony, right? So the combination of the clinical credential that is identity identified plus the user survey, plus the identity proof of Anthony is really Anthony, <laughs> then goes into a, a set of rules and says, oh, you wanna go to Paris? Well, it is sufficient to have two Pfizer's uh, more than two weeks ago, and then we'll let you in. And then Delta issues a passport to travel to Anthony's phone. So that's the workflow. So you can start to understand all the moving parts and components to this. And all this open, completely free implementation guides, Josh Mandel has authored this smart health card standard, and we're seeing a huge amount of traction across all the big tech companies, lots of startups, and lots of discussion in government. So think about this whole five stages of COVID, to me, are kind of most important IT issue on the vaccine front at the moment is as we envision back to life and back to work, being able to have these transportable credentials. And I think in the next 60 days, you're going to see products coming out that support these standards and help us with some of this back to life, back to work, get to a post-COVID new normal. But there are still challenges.
And before I go on to societal resilience, let me talk through variants. So Anthony, any idea how many COVID variants there are? Uh, three or four? 290 billion. Okay. Now, why do I tell you that? These you are embarrass RNA. me? No, These are RNA viruses. And RNA viruses have the characteristic of extraordinarily rapid mutation. Now, the good news, I guess, of those 290 billion variants, which is a mathematical model that suggests how many variants have occurred since last year, most are either not viable or not salient. It doesn't matter. But as we've started to see, there's a UK variant, a South African variant, a Brazilian variant. What you're starting to see is the UK variant might have a higher mortality rate. The South African variant may be more likely to spread and may be refractory to certain therapies and vaccines because of the nature of the mutation means that the place on the spike protein where the antibody binds is different now. Mm -hmm. So I tell you that, you know, not to scare you, but what it illustrates, just as we all get flu vaccines every year, probably we're going to now be getting COVID vaccines every year. And what does that mean? It means this notion of having a wallet, <laughs> which enables us to say, oh, I have this vaccine, I have this lab test, is actually not just a pandemic one-time event. It's going to probably be a new normal. And therefore, it should just, like we used to carry yellow cards. Anthony, you remember, are you old enough to remember the yellow card in your passport? <laughs> that, that's a little before my time, I think. <laughs> well, but so point being, we used to think that traveling with a yellow card was part of traveling. Well, the reality is traveling with a digital yellow card is probably going to be the new normal because we're going to have variants of COVID and other things emerging for years and years to come. So that gets us to the topic of, and I'll talk about cures too. If you go to the next slide, about just being resilient. And so what we saw, and let me just use a not pandemic example, right? So in Texas, right, what you have is situations where there's loss of power, loss of heat, you know, all kinds of stressful societal situations but do you have situational awareness? Do you really know who needs help and why? Well, you know, maybe you, you have some information from the electrical provider about where uh, they're not able to provide power, but you just don't have that robust set of APIs that is gonna enable first responders and society to prioritize its efforts. So I show you this slide as an exemplar of what all of us will be working on, I hope, from an IT perspective going forward. Which is, you know that our goal is societal resilience, that we're all happy and healthy. And that's, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, we got food, we got shelter, we got medicine, we got friends, we, you know, all these things. And so I just show you this diagram because fine, we've talked in the last couple of HIT policy updates about testing and contact tracing today, vaccine credentialing. Those are just Lego blocks in a long litany 
of IT improvements we should need to ensure society is capable of responding to any event that comes our way. And much of this has been done through non-traditional collaborations, where you have, for example, Google, Apple, and Microsoft came together for the Google Apple exposure notification standard, offering it for free for the benefit of society with hegemony of none. <laughs> when was the last time, Anthony, you saw Google, Apple, and Microsoft joining arms for the benefit of society and the benefit of none, right? I mean, it's, it's really kind of amazing how these coalitions have come together. And I expect that as all of us are going to be dealing with these societal challenges, whether it's climate change or whether it's an infectious disease, we're gonna be building more and more of these situational awareness components and dashboards, and we'll do it through non-traditional collaborations of government, academia, and industry. It will not be top-down from any one entity. It will not be solely government-based. One role government can play, though, is a convener. And so if you look at the cures that we've rolled out of late, we have monoclonal antibodies, we have hyperimmune globulin. We have convalescent plasma. And potentially there's some good news that convalescent plasma is going to be actually pretty helpful against the variants, right? And so, so this is, Anthony, gonna be the strangest example you've probably ever heard me use. But <laughs> Anthony, do you, do you buy local honey in the area where you live? I, I don't really buy honey. Okay, well say <laughs> some people say, you know what, I have seasonal allergies. And you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna buy honey from a farmer in my town. And I believe that if I eat that honey, I will get exposed to the pollens that are in my town and I will develop, you know, a little bit of resistance to the hay fever I have every summer. Now, if I sent you Sherborne, Massachusetts honey, probably not so helpful in New Jersey. <laughs> and so I tell you that because as we think of convalescent plasma, probably what you're gonna start seeing is local distribution of gathered convalescent plasma so that South African convalescent plasma is probably gonna be pretty good at helping people in South Africa. <laughs> And so to date, what we've seen is a lot of convalescent plasma is gathered and pooled and then redistributed. Probably going to see some changes to that. Probably going to see some monoclonal antibody combinations. It's not just one monoclonal, it's multiple types. And hyperimmune globulin, again, probably mixtures of various hyperimmune globulin formulations, polyvalent mixtures. So that means that we're going to need, again, IT systems to understand who is getting infected where. We're gonna need clinical trials that help us understand who should get what therapy when. And government can help us convene rational, what I'll call distribution of clinical trials. If you've watched during our time of COVID, we've seen clinical trials that you know, they were very well-meaning, but they said, oh, let's do a clinical trial on monoclonal antibodies, and there are 17 of them, and each of them enrolls 50 patients, right? Insufficient numbers to really give us a result. So I expect we'll have 
government as convener will have new federated distributed IT systems that help us run the clinical trials that are necessary to better understand what therapy should be given to whom, where. All part of this ongoing societal resilience. But we'll need some other tools. And maybe we can just go to my last slide. Mayo Clinic believes that our society is going to have increasing amounts of data. And that is not just EHR data or imaging data, but data from your phone, data from your home, data from your wearables. Every day that goes by, I see a new form of telemetry that is coming in some device. I talk to companies that are doing things like, oh, Anthony was playing football. He hit his head. Does he have a concussion? Ah, here's an EEG hat. You just put it on and it does an instantaneous EEG and an AI algorithm tells us likelihood of concussion or no before you've even left the field. That's just one example. You're seeing you know, ECGs from Apple Watches. You're, you're seeing wearables that can look at signs and symptoms and predict disease that hasn't even happened yet. You're gonna need Lego blocks, building components that enable us to ingest as a healthcare system, all these new kinds of telemetry, normalize them into standards, bring them together with algorithms, and then return a result in workflow. I'm gonna give you one last example to illustrate this. You'll see a paper coming out of Mayo Clinic in the next two weeks. We've developed an algorithm to diagnose COVID-19 infection from your watch. And you say, that's crazy talk. Well, it turns out COVID-19 binds to the ACE receptor on your heart and causes subtle changes in your ECG. And if you have a watch that can actually do a lead one ECG measurement and send us that telemetry, we run the algorithm against that telemetry and with a negative predictive value in the 90% range, we could say, oh, you know, Anthony, you don't have COVID today. So I tell you that because imagine the power of, I don't actually have to go get a nasal swab. I could just push a button on my watch and three seconds later, it says, no COVID today. <laughs> but it's going to take these various components that you see on this slide to be able to enable workflows like that. And Mayo is working across the industry with multiple startups and multiple companies to ensure we have these components. It's not just for Mayo Clinic. It's for the whole industry. And we'll be sharing very broadly to ensure that health systems across the country and the world will be able to do these same kind of novel innovations. So there you go. There's the quarterly update, Anthony, and turning it back to you. And love to hear from Jay about his thoughts and then do Q&A. Very good. Thank you very much for that. All right. So now we're going to uh, go to Jay. Uh, Jay, can you give me just a brief uh, outline of uh, your organization and your role over there? Sure. So my name is Jay Salton. I work for LexisNexis Risk. We're not the LexisNexis that does lawyers. That's a whole different company. Uh, we provide data and analytics and intelligence that leverage the tremendous data assets we have. LexisNexis brings in data from all kinds of government agencies, 
from all kinds of commercial sources, all the credit bureaus. Uh, we have 2.5 billion claims, the identified claims. So we gather data from all these different places and we use the data to create insights and sell them into various uh, industries. And we've been selling data into healthcare for 10 years. All right, very good. Thank you, Jay. Uh, our, our big question for you today, vaccine registration is driving the need to track and interact with patients using digital means. How has the concept of identity and the use of the EMPI changed over the last year with interoperability mandates and COVID testing and vaccination? You know, in healthcare, our data typically exists as a series of encounters or a series of admits or, or procedures or diagnoses, uh, drugs dispensed, enrollments, eligibilities, etc. We don't easily think about data in a person-centric way. And we, we've known this as an industry for decades, and we've made various efforts to address it. What's happening now is you're really seeing a handful of things come together, right? The, the age of consumerism is nothing new. We've been talking about that in healthcare for five years, but we're really seeing progress and uh, uh, changes happening that, that bring us to where consumerism is real. You add to that the mandates of interoperability, which means meaningful use, uh, sorry, beyond meaningful use, that we now have information blocking which we can fully expect will increase the number of times that a consumer knocks on your door and says, hey, I want my data. Uh, we see the new interoperability rules that, are, uh, that uh, Dr. Hamaka spoke of going into effect at different phases. Uh, by January 2023, if the rules don't change, and we heard him just say maybe it won't, that uh, all providers will have to support patients accessing their EMR direct data directly through the patient access API using the smart on fire methodology. So all of this are things that make us think that our engagement with consumers are gonna change a lot. Now you add to that what's going on with regard to COVID, COVID testing and COVID vaccinations. We have a number of customers who use LexisNexis in one of our services. One of our services is that of authentication. You know, like other vendors, we have the ability to electronically figure out, is this person who is saying they want to get your data or they're saying they want to open an account with you, are they who they really say they are? And so we have customers using this and their usage of our tools to authenticate new members that are for the first time ever creating digital access to their systems has just skyrocketed in the last two months. Now, it was trending up anyway because of COVID testing, but now that people are going to provider systems to register to get the vaccine, the number of new people for the first time ever creating entries is just skyrocketing. So what organizations need is the ability to, A, do good jobs of authentication. Are you really who you say you are? But to be able to tie that into their idea of identity. And the problem for providers with identity is that it's hard. All a provider has, all a hospital system has, is the data that you collect. Different encounters you've had with the member, with the patient, you get different uh, pieces of information. People's names change, their addresses change, stuff gets put in wrong. And you're trying to master that data in your EMPI or your MDM with only the data you have. Here at LexisNexis, we know all about every data point for basically every adult in the country. We know every address they've lived at. We know every name variation they've used. We have what we call reference data. 
And so one of the, the two big things that we see happening because of all these changes are one, provider organizations needing to enhance their existing EMPI, MDM capability so that they're no longer just trying to master off the data they have, but they're able to master using our reference data so that we can plug our reference data into your existing infrastructure, prolonging the investment you have in that piece of technology, but allow it to do a more accurate job of figuring out who is who. And the reason that's so important is in the past, we've never been penalized for under combining data. So if I call my hospital and I want my data and there's five records in there, but the EMPI only links three of them, there was never any consequence. Now there's consequence to overgathering and including other people's data incorrectly. But that was the old world. In a world of information blocking, in a world of the interoperability rule, you have to actually match data correctly. You can't either aggregate too little data or aggregate too much. You gotta get it right. And so I believe delivery systems are, are needing more better uh, information that we can provide in forms of reference data to be able to actually do a better job of doing their EMPI management. And the final thing I think is going back to this idea of identity and people newly coming to the organization. When people come to you electronically with their digital uh, yellow card or whatever, or, or they're asking you to vend data out to their digital yellow card, you have to know that they are who they say they are. And that's part of it. And we're, we're really going beyond ideas of like single factor versus multi-factor. Fact is most hospitals still just use uh, uh, a, a, a single factor uh, ED, uh, IDP to try to validate identity. We need to be using far more sophisticated means. We also need to understand the difference between the identity of a person and also track the identity of a device. Because in the world we will, we're living in now and we'll be living in in the future, identity is not just about is Jay Sultan Jay Sultan, but is Jay Sultan accessing me on a device that I believe Jay Sultan would be accessing me on. So these far more sophisticated ideas around identity Mastering identity, authenticating identity come as part and parcel of this new world that we just heard about. Wow, that was great, Jay. Lots, uh, lots to digest there uh, and very useful to our conversation. Very value adding. Um, great. So let's do our audience Q&A. We have a few things that have come in. Um, so let me read this one to you, Dr. Halamka. Regarding information blocking, I'd like clarification at a more specific action level facing hospitals. So, for example, if my organization participates in a regional HIE and our exchange of information freely goes to the exchange, but another organization wants a direct feed between my organization and theirs, would I be information blocking if I said to the requesting organization, connect with the HIE? The point is how to avoid multiple redundant exchanges. In a similar way, this question impacts the interoperability rule. If I send notifications one way, but someone wants it differently, what are my obligations? Right, and of course, this is what is called sub-regulatory guidance, right? The regulations say one thing, but as we get these use cases coming up, I am certain that ONC and CMS will have further guidance. But generally what you could say is this, if and again, Anthony, making this up, if somebody says, I really don't like fire, I want smoke signals, right? You know, you say, no, 
because the nature of the interoperability rule is to say we are going to exchange data using commonly accepted standards and those standards are enumerated. And presumably as long as the HIE did not have extraordinary technical difficulty to connect to or astronomical fees, of course it would be a preferred way to do things. The last thing you really want is an N squared problem where every entity is connecting in a point solution to every other entity. So, so that's why the exception was made. Like, oh, okay, well, what if the, again, making this up, the HIE wants $1 million to connect to it. Well, then you can kind of understand why the individual doesn't want to do the HIE route, but otherwise, of course they should. And it should fall under the, you know, what we'll call the sort of reasonable right. approach of not blocking the access to the information. Right, right. Yep, very good. Uh, next question, why not use CLEAR? Uh, that's all in caps. I suppose that's a product for vaccination proof. They are in airports, arenas, simple solution. Well, clear is part of the initiative, right? So the thing you should understand about everything I said, it's a level playing field for all companies that want to develop solutions, but it doesn't mandate any particular solution. So in fact, Back, clear is part of the initiative and they're going to adopt the standard and I'm certain they'll have some flavor of vaccine credential and if the, if the consumers want it, great. So that's the interesting thing about these coalitions is that truly they don't favor any one company or create a monopoly. They create a marketplace and clear is part of the marketplace. Jay, I want to run this one by you. This is a statement, uh, not a question. Totally need a unique patient identifier to make all of this work? Well, um, from your lips to a certain senator's ears, right? Uh, we've had, uh, as many of you know, uh, basically a very small sub subset of the legislature uh, blocking CMS from being able to take the necessary steps to get us to where we can establish identity better. And I think it's inevitable that the new administration and the new Congress is going to need to push on this. We need it so that we can do things like effectively match whether or not somebody got both doses of the vaccine, or if they didn't, how we're going to figure out how to find them and get and, and, and remediate it. We need it so that we can be more clear that when you're asking to download your data, we know who you are and how we're getting you all of your data and none of somebody else's data. But ultimately, we need it in order to enhance privacy, right? The, the, this whole topic has come full circle. People say we don't want to have a, a, a universal patient identifier because somehow that'll make it easier for your data to get out there. Your data is out there today. Personal health record on the dark web is worth 10 times what your financial records are, and they're not that hard to come by. What we need is the ability to use an identifier so that we can do a better job of locking down and enforcing security, privacy. Uh, Dr. Holomka, any thoughts on the uh, National Patient Identifier? And so, Anthony, one of the things I, I recommend folks look at is the Pew Charitable Trust convened 100 experts last year to look at best practices. And we did not declare that, again, it was a particular company or a particular technology. But there were some things that we thought were kind of important. Do you know that EHRs today don't enforce the United States Postal Service accurate address check. 
So you know how you've, I'm sure Anthony experienced this. You go to a website and you type, you know, 123 Main Street and it says, oh, well, don't you mean Main Boulevard? Because there is no Main Street in Hoboken, <laughs> right? And so the challenge is, is how are you gonna start doing any kind of identity proofing if the source data in our EHRs about demographics is so messy? And so this paper, Pew Charitable Trust, identity paper just shows you some of the things we are going to need to do on this getting to the better identity or at least a nationwide patient matching strategy. All right. Next question for you, Dr. Halamka. As we look at this societal side, there is so much needed in new systems, both technology and process, which areas should be our first areas of focus? Yeah. And so... My experience over the course of the pandemic suggests that um, things like being able to understand supply chain, understand who has what and who needs what <laughs> is certainly going to be pretty important. And we uh, just, again, being honest, in our last 10 months, we've done things like FTP spreadsheets. And, you know, we did it and it kind of worked, but it is certainly not very resilient. <laughs> uh, and so I think the idea of moving forward with APIs that enable secure just-in-time query across organizations for coordination of all kinds of supply chain issues is going to be pretty important. And obviously, then we move to things like the information blocking and interoperability rule to sh say there's more transportability of healthcare data. And then you heard me talk about the need for better coordination of clinical trials so we can understand more rapidly what cures, what vaccines have what efficacy. So those would be my, my three. All right. We're running a little short on time. I want to give each of you an opportunity for a final thought. Dr. Halamka, any, any final thought you want to send our troops back out into the world with? Absolutely. As you've heard me talk about technology, always remember about disparities of care, equity, and racism. Because we saw in the New York Times, I'm sure you read this this morning, Anthony, that the human life expectancy among people of color has fallen by 2.7 years. And this is because of lack of access to care, lack of access to vaccines. And so as we think of these new technology solutions, let us not create a digital divide that's even worse than we have today. Always think about how a technology could be used on a low cost flip phone, a piece of paper, uh, borrowing your neighbor's device, right? Something that just doesn't worsen our existent disparities. Very good, Jay, your final thoughts? I appreciate this opportunity to visit with y'all. Uh, over the last two years, I've spoken with hundreds of executives, C-suite folks in hospitals across the country. And the desire to pretend that all of this is gonna go away, it's still so prevalent in boardrooms across hospitals in America. CIOs, you need to be the ones to bring the reality. Interoperability, information blocking, the, the role of hospitals in providing digitally signed information to digital yellow cards, these are not gonna go away. 
the organizations that fail to embrace them are going to ha really suffer for it. Uh, I think, you know, the, the point that this is about psychology now, not, not regulation, is exactly right. And if you need to be an agent of bringing a reality check to your organization, you'll be doing them a favor by doing so. This stuff is happening, and they need to make the right investments so that you can do it and do it well. Wow, great, great session. Uh, definitely made, made me think about some some things, uh, uh, new world kind of stuff. Um, the hopes that you know this would be a one and done and get back to the way things were. Doesn't sound like it's going to happen. So. Uh, regarding continuing education, you can use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready to view. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you can go to our website to register for our upcoming webinars. With that, I want to very much thank our incredible session today, uh, led by I want to I enjoyed our session led by Dr. John Halamka uh, and Jay Sultan contributing some great thoughts. I want to thank LexisNexis Risk, Risk Solutions for making the event possible and supporting it. I want to thank you, our attendees. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.